open your Bibles to John 21. And uh, as I said before, we'll be diving into that. This wasn't original to the band Chicago about not um, appreciating what you have until it's gone. Uh, I'm sure people have been doing that for a really, really long time. Uh, but this morning, I am extra appreciative that the lights are on and that mics are working and that air conditioning is running because uh, we've been without power for the last, um, I don't know what it was, 48 hours or so. Uh, Rich Henderson did a breakfast in here Saturday morning, and it turns out that um, I learned more about Transformers, uh, not the movie or the toy, uh, but PG&E style, uh, went out and uh, learned that our church has three and that they blow up once in a while. So um, anyway, uh, next time you see John G., um, give him a pat on the back. The guy, uh, the guy's just been here, there, and everywhere the last 24 hours. Um, here was the best part. This morning I got a text. I woke up to this text. The power is on. So I was like, cool. Uh, so that was a good thing. Uh, but just, you know what that just underscores is a, a little bit of what we're talking about this morning, that so much goes on behind the scenes. And at the end of the day, uh, last night, I was just thinking through this morning and how it will be without power. We're good, right? We get together and we have church. We don't need this building. We don't need our padded chairs. We don't need PowerPoint. We certainly don't need amplification of any kind. We're good. And so I just thought, man, that's an exciting thing about the church um, of God, that we can, we can gather and meet. But it sure makes you appreciative when you have it. Um, hopefully you're open to, to John 21. We'll get there in just a second. Um, how many of you guys like movies? It's okay to raise your hands. You better be honest in church. That's a good thing. Okay. Anyone ever miss the end of a movie before? You ever miss the end of a movie before? Yeah. Uh, isn't that the worst? I mean, it really is. There's... There's times where, you know, I don't go to a lot of movies because it's, it's kind of pricey. And to take my family out, um, you know, we have to sell one of our kids just to get the whole family to the theater. But, um, but you know, when you're sitting there, and a couple times I remember, you know, like, you have to go to the bathroom or whatever. And you're sitting there like, if you're going to miss a part, you're going to miss a part in the middle somewhere. You're not going to miss kind of the climax, right, the very end of it. It's just so important. It's critical kind of to the whole story. And I, I was thinking about John and how he ends his gospel, John chapter 21. And the end of the story of Jesus is actually really, really critical. The, the story of Jesus, if you look at the Bible, uh, in some ways you could, you could make a very solid argument that it's really the whole thing. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, are four writers that write specifically about the life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus Christ. So as you look at kind of how they end their stories, here's how, here's how the story of Jesus ends. The story of Jesus ends in the four Gospels with an emphasis on the church and its work. So in a way, just like when you watch a movie and you, and you think at the end of it, uh, you know, it just sets itself up for a sequel. You know, at the very end of Jurassic Park, I remember watching that with some college buddies of mine right when it came out. At the very end of it, it's like, oh, there's a sequel coming. There's just little clues in movies that you're like, oh, that sets up for more. And I love the way the Gospels do it, because it's exactly the same way. Just really quick, Matthew. How does Matthew end, end its Gospel? Don't turn to Matthew 28 and read it. Just tell me. How does Matthew end his Gospel? Yeah, go into all the world and call it the Great Commission, right? We could all kind of quasi-butcher that and get basically spit out the, the gist of it, right? It's Jesus sending his disciples out into the world, Right? We call it the Great Commission. Pretty important stuff. Mark kind of takes similar themes and, and does a, a similar kind of, of thing with, with his gospel. Luke's focus is Jerusalem. He kind of takes the lens and puts it there. 
And this is where Jesus at first had commanded them to wait for power from on high. And Luke's sequel was the book of Acts, right? Dr. Luke wrote, first wrote Luke, and then he writes Acts. And he's beginning to record some things about the early church and what went on. And we know from Acts chapter 1 that power did come from on high, and they were given the Holy Spirit, and off went the church. How about John? How does John end his gospel? If you take kind of the whole of John 21, in a way it, it reads a little bit like an epilogue. Remember the prologue? John chapter 1, I think the first basically 18 verses read almost like a prologue. And we talked about a prologue months and months and months ago, where John kind of, kind of forward-reaching says, these are all the themes I'm going to hit on. And we keep going back to John 1, because as you read through the Gospel of John, when you're studying this, when you're teaching your kids this, when you're walking through a new believer with this, remember this stuff. Keep reaching back to John 1. It's all spelled out kind of there. And then he kind of bookends it with this epilogue, John chapter 21. And John chapter 21 has a miracle in it, has a great miracle in it. But it's, it's, it's different than the other miracles. The other miracles have been signs pointing out to, to unconvinced or people who are on the fence. These are signs pointing that Jesus is, in fact, Messiah. And this final sign, this whole chapter, in fact, is addressed to the church. So it's not one more sign saying, oh, by the way, there's, there's one more miracle I wanted to throw in here. Rather, this whole thing is kind of addressed to the church and it's giving us our commission. It's giving us our identity. I love that John, kind of the way he does it, is he packages the great commission that Matthew wrote in his personality in a very succinct way of what Jesus said. John kind of takes those same themes and he he rolls it and folds it into a story. And it's not just a story, it's just an everyday life kind of a story. And we're going to kind of see that as we, as we look at that. We're going to see a specific charge to Peter here. But what we realize is it's not really just to Peter. It's really to Peter and the disciples. And it's not really just Peter and the disciples specific in that scene. It's really to, to us as, as disciples. We're going to hear that Peter is to be a fisher of men. We're going to see that Peter, you're called to tend my sheep. You're going to be a shepherd. We're not talking about fish. We're not talking about little furry things right now. We're talking about people. And the, and the commission, if you read it, I mean, it's so succinct in, in, in especially Luke and Matthew, but where it just says, it's going to start here in Jerusalem. But it's going to also entail Judea and Samaria. And it's going to, it's going to basically entail the whole world. So it's just kind of this movement that's starting right here, but it's going to be the whole world. And can you imagine these humble, simple fishermen, pretty young guys, receiving this, just going, whoa. That's a huge call. That's a huge commission. But what a gift it is to be given by Jesus our mission and our identity. I just sat and thought one uh, a little bit this time, or this last week. I thought about how many destructive things we can get ourselves into trying to find out our mission and our identity. I mean, just think about yourself for a second. Think about family members that you know. Isn't it true that so many times that we chase down little paths of sin, really we're chasing our identity. Who are we? Who are we trying to become? I loved middle school ministry because middle school ministry was a lot trying to figure out who am I? And you just see kids try on different hats. They kind of come to youth group one day and they're like totally different than they were last week. They're kind of trying it on. And I love being an older brother in Christ and coming and put my arm around and saying, you know what? Those of us in the family of God, we don't act that way. We don't, we don't talk that way. You know, if that is so worshipped by the world, it's a dead end. Don't go there. 
And just to be able to kind of help steer people that. But people get into a lot of destructive things, trying to find identity, trying to find their mission in this life. And Jesus is gifting it to us. Here's what we discover at the end of, of this gospel. At the end of each of the gospels, really, is that the sequel... So Jesus' story ends, and I put that kind of in quotations because he's eternal, right? But right where the story of Jesus ends is where the sequel picks up, and the sequel is us. The sequel is the church. And so the, the, the sequel to the story of Jesus isn't necessarily really acts. I mean, that's where the story really flows if you want to go chronological order. But what's so powerful is to realize I'm the sequel to this story. Just as God lived His life out in Jesus, now Jesus is going to live His life out in me. That's really, really powerful. That's humbling. That's where we're going to go. That's where I get this title, this idea that you and I become a fifth gospel. To use other writers of the New Testament, living epistles, living letters. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We become a third testament to what God is doing and speaking and working in the world. Now, as I set up this intro, I'm just typing away. I'm just so fired up in my office about this. I'm like, Lord, this is unbelievable. And then I thought about this reality. This sounds so lofty. It sounds so pristine. And it sounds so really, really crystal clear when I'm sitting at my computer. I have news for you. It's not. It, it is lofty. And in some ways, it is clear, but it certainly is a lot more messy than it sounds, kind of just reading from this and, and saying how, how exciting that all is. Because real life enters the pic- picture and it makes it challenging. John 21, verse 1 says this. Look at it with me. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Let me stop there for a second. NIV says afterward. I think NAS says after these things. So then you say, okay, we're, we're in the epilogue. We're in the kind of the closing thing. After what things? We're not going to go back and review the whole, the whole of the book, but some of you are super into, you know, CSI timeline type stuff, you know, whatever, and, and just kind of a really rapid fire bullet point. Just, just think about what, what the setting is as we, as we head into the end here. There's the incredible whirlwind week that led to the cross, right? You're a disciple in that scenario. You're terrified. You're shocked. You're confused. That's what's going on. We talked about this earlier, but all of the blood, the betrayal, the deep sadness of the cross, the grossness of the crucifixion. And now it's not touching someone out there that I have to walk by and look at it and be reminded about it, but now it's my, my teacher, my rabbi, this this one I've left everything for and for three years been falling around. Now it's him. And a little small band of losers, basically, by all earthly accounts, is standing around the cross, kind of true to the end. Move along to reports of resurrection from some crazy ladies that said that they, you know, Jesus isn't there. Reports that, that he's alive. And then all of a sudden having him appear as if a ghost through locked doors. Okay, this is what's gone on in the last basically couple of weeks of these guys' lives. A whole other week passes, and Thomas is there this time, and Thomas makes this declaration. God loves to use the doubter to make one of the strongest proclamations of who he is, my Lord and my God, and he worships him there. 
And then the disciples were told by Jesus to return to home base. He tells them, I'm going to point it out several different times, go to Galilee. And the Sea of Tiberias, which is what we're reading it as, is the Sea of Galilee. And he basically tells them to a specific mountain even. And he's saying, return to home base and await further instructions. Listen to Matthew 28.10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Mark 14.28. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Mark 16.7. The angel talking says, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And in Matthew 28, speaking about Galilee, referring to a specific mountain that Jesus had told them to go. So the disciples are up in Galilee in this story. That's where the setting takes place now. All the crucifixion, all of that stuff took place in Jerusalem. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 2 now, of John 21. So after these things, it says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, Nathaniel from Cana, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. What are they supposed to be doing in Galilee? Waiting. Waiting for Jesus, right? Go on to the home base where we kind of started this whole thing and wait for me there. I'm going there. Verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. <clears throat> so, go on ahead to Galilee. I'll meet you there. And Peter decides to uh, cause problems, which is not abnormal. Here's, here's the problem. Their, their, their location is close, right? They're in the right region. But instead of being on a mountain waiting for Jesus, they're on a lake in a boat fishing, which may seem fairly benign, except for the fact that most of you in this room know where Peter was called from when Jesus first met him. And it was from a fisherman's life. This is you and I going back to the office. This is us just, just walking back into our old life, right? This is us returning to things we had done in the past. Peter, the rock on whom the church would be built. Remember that comment from Jesus? He just drifts back to what he knows. And basically, think about it. Remember this faith emergency idea that I talked about? I think that's what prompted this for Peter. I mean, I don't know how the conversation goes. They don't fill us in on a lot of the details with the Gospels. But they're sitting around going, well, we're told to wait here. Now what? Who's the most impulsive and patient one that we see all through the Gospels? Peter. Every time. All the time. He's the one that probably long before making this pronouncement was like, hey, uh, let's go. And at some point, he just pulls the, pulls the trigger on it. A faith emergency began to prompt him just doing what he does in the flesh, flesh which is act. Which isn't always the wisest thing. Aren't you and I the same? Don't you and I have a, a drifting tendency to us? If I'm not constantly fighting the steering wheel, I am just drifting. Even back into old problems and old scenarios that I don't even like in the first place. But they're comfortable. It's kind of this old adage that when we don't know what to do, we kind of return to what we know. You're kind of at this crossroads. You go, I don't know if I'm supposed to go right or I'm supposed to go left. Sometimes, some of you in this room just pull a trigger and go for it, but sometimes we just ignore that decision and we just kind of drift back to what we've done before. For Peter, this meant fishing. And where does it lead him? 
failure. Right? He fishes all night. I fish for 10 minutes, and if I don't catch something or get a bite, it's kind of boring, and I'm a failure. I don't know how these guys, he's a professional, so he can do it all night and feel that same sense. But all night, I mean, these guys are skilled at this. They, they know how to trap schools of fish, and they've got this down. This may be Peter's own boat, and they're skunked. I mean, they're just done. They, they, all their human effort is resulting into nothing. Here's what blows me away about this, is that, think about Peter. Peter and the other disciples... I, they have like been to the moon and back with Jesus. They, they, they've, they've, they've time traveled. I mean, whatever it is that amazes you, that you just go, no way is that possible. That's what they've seen. They've been on this journey with Jesus, and they've, I mean, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of us time traveling today. Like, I've already seen next week. It's crazy. And then next week came and I saw it. That's what they've done with Jesus. They've walked this road. And then after doing all of that, they just kind of drift back to status quo. And we look at them and go, well, I can't imagine they just do the same old thing after being with Jesus all those years. Once again, I turn the lens on myself. Almost every summer, I'd go to a place called Hume Lake, and God would rock my world at Hume Lake. He just would. He would expose me for who I am. He would encourage me. He would, just, he would just light up truth in my life. And I'd just go, I am never, ever going back to the life that I led before I came up this mountain. Guess what happens when you don't keep steering? Keep pulling in a different direction. You drift, right? And so you kind of drift back to places that are really familiar and really not mountaintop at all. And so I think about Hume Lake. Some of you just got back from Mexico. Some of you others have been on incredible missions trips. I've read some of your diary entries. You said, man, let me just show you what God was teaching me here. You've been to places in your marriage. You, you've, you've been through past faith emergencies where God parted waters for you and you walked across on dry land and you're like, there's no way I'm never forgetting this. And then you do. We drift. We can do this as a church collectively. We do the same thing. Charlie Peacock, I put this in your notes has this song, William and Maggie. And it says, It always amazed me how someone could come to the edge of the world, drop a stone down the side, and turn and return to the very same life. These disciples had done that. They, they, they had just been to the very edge of things and just had a whole new world opened up. And here they were kind of back where they started. But it wasn't just kind of that they were clueless to the new life. Rather, it was the fact that Peter and the rest who had followed Peter were actually in disobedience. So again, it wasn't just a benign, uh, let's do this, and that was kind of a, a neutral choice. It was, a, it was a disobedience to be doing this. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee and wait. Remember what sin is? Many of you learn this. That sin comes from a word, an idea that says, to miss the mark. And the idea being, if Jesus says, come here, stand on this X, this is the spot you're supposed to stand... And you're close to X, you can see X, but you're over here. You've missed the mark. You've sinned, right? And so these disciples are kind of close, but in their impatience, in their impulsiveness, in the other disciples not really knowing what else to do, and so following their, their vocal impatient leader, they go, I guess I'll go with Peter. They're all really in disobedience as they're floating around on that boat out there. Kind of falling into the category of why thinking is handy, um, I came across this news article and uh, 
says this, Rescue crews from Filer, Idaho, rushed to the aid of a man who was stuck in a sewage tank at a highway rest stop. There's a pretty picture. The unidentified traveler had used the toilet and then couldn't find his car keys. He figured he must have flushed them and climbed into the sewage tank to look for them. After the rescue crews, or after the rescue, obliging fire crews hosed him off, and that's when he discovered the keys were still in his back pocket, said Police Chief Cliff Johnston. Let me just say that someone who climbs into a sewage tank as kind of a first choice and leaving his search, searching his pockets as a second choice, this is a guy who longs for a do-over, right? And, and, if, and if we're... You know, if we think for 30 seconds, we think in our own lives and go, I'm that person. I, I may not be known for my impulsiveness, but, but I sure long for a do-over. And kind of the Jesus word for a do-over, do-over is this word grace. And I love how John 1 puts it. It just says, here comes Jesus. God shows up in the flesh and he's full of grace and truth. And this is who Jesus is. What, a, what an amazing picture to keep. That's Peter. He's impatient. He would have been this guy, lunging for choice two before really stopping and thinking that maybe I should check my pockets first. I'm going fishing fishing seemed right at the time, but he definitely needed a do-over. Here's where I'm going with this. Peter in his impulsiveness. Peter in his disobedience. Peter in his failing fishing. I mean, the one thing he's good at, right? I think God sovereignly is keeping all fish out of his net at that point. God can do that. He's making a point. Jesus messes with our lives, right? In the best sense of the word. Peter in all of this is a fifth gospel. This is the testimony. Part of Peter's testimony is, I've seen the risen Christ. I've put my trust in Him. He's my Savior. I've followed Him. And I still blow it. I still float around on a boat, trying in human effort. And that's part of the testimony of Peter's life. God only uses broken, fragile, mistake-prone people. Because that's all there are. We look around and we think other people aren't that. They are. So if God's going to use any people, it has to be broken people. It has to be those who are mistake-prone and who tend to spill the milk, who are impulsive and impatient and at times untrusting. That's the kind that God uses. I'm going to invite uh, Clink up here. Clink has more of a full name, but we just call him Clink. And I've asked him to share some things. Um, God just brings people into my office once in a while, right in the middle of the week, that, um, that underscore... Here, Clink, use this one. That kind of underscore uh, what's going on. And he was sharing with me some things. We were just we spent a little bit of time in prayer and just, just chatting together as brothers. And it was kind of a chance meeting. We didn't really plan on it. But as he was sharing, I just said, man, uh, you, you just need to share some of this on Sunday, Sunday morning. So, uh, Clink, share a little bit about what, what we were talking about. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Um, uh, basically, I've been out of work since July. I've been off work since April. Um, and when I first found out that I was going to be off work, uh, I prayed about it. I said, that's the first place to go. I want God to be in this. I prayed about it. I didn't hear him. I didn't hear him. I didn't hear him. Day passed. Day passed. Didn't hear him. Didn't hear him. I got frantic. I said, I'm not waiting anymore. Just like Peter. I said, I'm going fishing. So first thing I did, hit the job market. Boom. 
That's the right thing to do. God doesn't want us to stand around in a field in sackcloth and ashes and not do anything right. But I wasn't waiting. I wasn't listening to him. I was just going to take control and go out and do what I thought was the best thing to do. Now, remember, in the beginning, I had prayed about this. I had prayed, God, give me wisdom in this. Show me where you want me because I can go and find where I want me. So basically what happened was is a week passed, another week passed, a month passed, almost two months have passed, and I'm not finding work. I'm turning in applications, which is like these guys fishing. I'm taking those things out. I'm fishing and fishing. I'm getting no responses back or getting negative responses back. And it was because I was doing it in my own power. And it wasn't until I think that we really talked about it, I realized it was sin. You know, I thought it was just, oh, I'm getting some bad luck. The job market's tough. You know, they don't need emergency room nurses, which is appropriate for it. I think I safe emergencies. Um, but really what it is was sin. And it wasn't until we really talked about it that I realized that what I needed to do was originally what God had told me to do. And that's the way. And how did he tell me to do that? I didn't hear a voice in my head. He tells me in his word. How many times in the past has he been faithful to me when I've waited? But I took it upon myself to go out and rush. The good thing about it right now is I'm still in the middle of that story. My story hasn't changed. I don't have a job today. I don't have the prospects of a job, maybe a little bit. But I do know this for a fact, especially after what we've read this time, is I'm in the middle of this story. One day, one day, Christ is going to come onto the shore where I am and say, Hey, hey, you're supposed to be waiting here. I'm here. Why don't you cast your net out that side of the boat? Out that side of the boat. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time, and I know for a fact at that time that I will be delivered. And looking back in retrospect, what can I take from this whole thing? I've seen his resurrection in my own life. I've seen his faithfulness in my own life. I've seen him raise the dead in my own life. Not literally speaking, but, you know, in my own life with my own sin and my own struggles. And what did I do? I didn't wait. Just like these guys. So when we started reading this and I really started studying this, it wasn't until we really talked once I got more and more and more into it. I realized I'm living this right now. And I'm not the only one. I'm sure there's many people in this room and in this world right now are living the very same thing. Thanks. Stay up here, Clay. Um, let, me just, uh, let me just do this. I, I had said we were going to try to do something here as a large group that is usually more conducive to do in a living room. Uh, but we can do this as well. Um, I'm going to ask Greg Holstclaw to come on up. Greg uh, kind of heads up our community groups. And I, I've asked Greg if he would pray for Clink this morning. And, um, and, and just ask, ask God's, God's favor on him and, and ask God's blessing on him. Well, what I want to do is this. Um, as, Greg, as, as Greg is praying for, for Clink, um, what I'd like to do is have others of you in this room, and, and I would venture to guess there's many, that have faith emergencies right now going on that you would love prayer for. So here's how I want to do this. If you have a faith emergency that you just go, I just need to be prayed for, what I want you to do is I want you to stand up. And as you stand up, and as Greg prays for Clink, I just want people around, just lay hand on a shoulder, and as Greg's praying for Clink, really, he's praying for all of us, and those around you will be praying for you as you stand up. So would you stand up right now, if you have a faith emergency and you say, it's any broad number of things, but I need prayer right now, would you stand up right now, and as someone stands up, others of you can just gather around, place a hand on their shoulder, and come gather around, and let's pray for our brothers and sisters, our family, and let's do this. Keep standing. Keep standing. Let's, let's just see who's standing first and then ga- gather around. 
just come gather around these couples that are standing. And as Greg prays, receive, receive this prayer uh, kind of through, through the family of God here. Let's pray. Lord God, you are awesome and mighty God who rose from the dead. And we've been studying your word in John. And we are confident of, of all these things, Lord. And we know that, you're, that our faith in you isn't, isn't based on, on what other people have said or just old stories but because you have been faithful in all that you've done in the past, you predicted everything that happened in the Lord's life hundreds of years before it happened, and you were faithful to complete all of those actions, Lord, and you were faithful to raise them from the dead. Mm. And all these acts of faithfulness on your part gives us confidence and trust when we, now in the present, ask things in faith for you to come. And if you say, wait, then we'll, we will be faithful and wait for you to come. And when you say, cast your nets on the other side, that we will be faithful and we'll do those things, and that you will be there and you'll put fish in the net, that you will give us a new job, or that you will come and meet the need that's in our lives, Lord God. So I just pray for Clink right now that he's been listening to you and he's been waiting for you to come and do something, Lord. And if that comes tomorrow, if that comes in four more weeks, Lord God, that you will bless his faithfulness with the peace that passes all understanding, Lord God, that you'll just give him the assurance that you're there with him, Lord. I just pray for, for Clink and for everyone here, Lord God, that you will bless them with the nearness of your spirit in these tough times, in these trials of faith, when there's broken relationships, when there's addictions and sins, when there's just tough times with money, and when there's just so much that's going on in our lives, Lord God, that we can just be faithful and waiting for you to just say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And even though the faith crisis might not be resolved for a little bit longer, Lord God, that your nearness is the thing that, that draws us close to you and that your spirit will just give us that peace, Lord God. So I just pray for everyone. I pray for Clink that, that we will just continue to walk in the things that you give us even if it's deep and dark like the valley of shadow of death, Lord God, that you still, you're still there with us, Lord, and eventually we'll come to a time where we, we understand the hardships and the trials, that we'll understand the things that you were doing to glorify yourself and to, to make us a people that, is, that worship you, Lord God. So I just pray for Clink. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that, that you'll just draw near to us, God, and just answer us in your time, Lord, that we can be faithful to you and trust in your faithfulness forever to us, Lord God. And just bless us as we continue this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can go and be seated. Thanks. Ben, why don't you and the guys come on up? We're going to um, just sprinkle some singing in right now. And as we do, I want you to... Um, Clink said something great to me just this morning in the back. He said, you know, I have the benefit of knowing how this story is. And, and knowing <clears throat> that Jesus is really close to Peter in his failing human efforts, isn't he? Pastor Jesus is standing on the seashore watching the whole thing. He's about to speak truth into his life. It's going to be full of truth and full of grace. Before we move on to the great catch and the whole cast your net on the other side, I wanted us to just linger in this idea of right in the midst of being kind of caught with his hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, in disobedience. That's the scenario that Jesus is speaking into. So let's, um, let's sing together. I want to just uh, finish reading our passage here this morning and say a few more thoughts and then, uh, and then we'll be dismissing.
We've looked at the story so far and uh, realized that Jesus is on the shore. And uh, picking up in verse 4, it says this, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which would be John. Very good. Trick question. Usually it's Peter right now. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Typical of these two, John is the first to perceive something. Peter's the first to act. And that's exactly why I need friends. I need people to perceive things for me or act for me. And it's just great to see these two kind of interplay. Uh, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far off from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Scene one is disciples out on the lake. As we've already kind of looked at, they probably shouldn't have been there, really. But they were back doing what most of us tend to do, and that is to drift. Scene two, there's a lot of deja vu going on here, isn't there? There's catching of fish that's gone on before. There's, there's breaking of bread and offering it that's been happening before. And Jesus is speaking into their lives. Now, if you're a fisherman of any you know, length of time at all, any, any fisherman loves a good fish story, Right? And fish stories tend to grow over time, right? You know, I caught this fish, and, you know, ten years later, it's like, Grandpa, I wasn't even close to that big, you know? Now we've got digital uh, images to keep those a little bit more honest, but um, I guess with Photoshop, you could stretch the truth a little bit. But fishermen love a fish story, right? That's, that's a little bit of what they're about. And here's 153 of them being caught. And here's, a, here's something I want you to catch, is that, is that Peter catches these fish. That's what he's been trying to do all night long. That's kind of the, the immediate context of him. I am trying to catch fish. I'm frustrated. I know how to do this. And the second the fish start to get hauled in, what does Peter do? He jumps. He just, he just leaves it all. And he kind of forgets the immediate for the sake of what he was really about not long before. And that was longing to be with Jesus. Longing to hear from Jesus. Awaiting input from Jesus. Once again, I want you to catch something. That's the testimony. Peter doing this is the fifth gospel. Him being in sin is part of, the, of, of, of being a, a living witness. Him responding to Jesus this way is part of the living witness. When you're caught red-handed in disobedience, like Peter was, you know what Peter does? He goes and shares breakfast with the one who cancels his debt. When Jesus beckoned you into fellowship, and that's what they were doing, having a meal was just, things are okay between us. Come and sit down, let's eat breakfast together. 
When Jesus makes that offer, Peter says, I'm all about that. And he rushes for it. When presented with financial reward, which 153 fish would be, you know what Peter? Peter counts it nothing. He says, that's, that's not even close to what the real treasure is. The real treasure is, my Savior is on the shore about 100 yards away. I can make that distance in no time flat. He was probably a little cocky. When others think that you're weird or thoughtless, those in the boat, may, you know, they're probably over his weirdness by now. They, they've lived with this guy. You're over your weird friends by now, right? But it's a little thoughtless. Hey, uh, Peter, help us drag the fish in, buddy. He didn't care about any of that. No, no social thing was going to keep him. He was going to gird his loins, so to speak, and he was going to take off for Jesus. Get to him the quickest way he knew how. He wasn't waiting for the boat. He wasn't waiting for fish. He wasn't waiting for other people to come along with him. He was getting to Jesus. And that's what he did. That's the testimony. That's the witness. What's the moral of the story? How do I become a fifth gospel? How do I become a third testimony, a living epistle? One is to realize that Jesus is with you in your everydayness. In, in, in the boring moments of your day, in the routine moments of your day. I love that about the Bible. It's so routine in a lot of ways. We live in a culture that worships big and kind of snuffs off faithfulness. Loyalty. Little tiny insignificant things. Don't make the news. Don't sell papers. Whatever. They just leave it, leave it kind of tucked away. Jesus is with you in your everydayness. At the end of Matthew's Great Commission, he says this, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. This is Jesus talking. Then he says, Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then the last part of it is, And I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. And the sandwich of our great commission to make disciples is that all authority has been given to me, Jesus, and I, Jesus, am with you always. So when you stand up here like Clink and you say, I've been without a job for a while, but then you rest in the fact that all authority has been given to the one that I've given myself over to. And he's with me always, right now, in this. That is a powerful, powerful thought. How do you and I become part of God's story? The secret doesn't lie where we think it does. It's not that we have to go looking around for five stones or a giant to kill or these different things. God uses those things periodically. He does really big things once in a while. But if you read the Gospels, if you read the Bible, you see story after story after story of very ordinary people doing some fairly extraordinary things because of a great God. Here's how you do it. Ready? Go live a normal, everyday life. As a follower of Christ, go live your life. Go do what God's calling you to do. If it's to be without a job for right now, like Clink said, it's not godly. If, if, if Clink just sat around and didn't provide for his family and just said, well, you know, I have the job listings under my pillow and I'm just hoping God's going to, you know, provide one for me. We would come around him and say, bud, get after it. But there's a way of doing that in the flesh, isn't there? And there's a way of doing that, checking in constantly with the Savior and waiting on Him and waiting on His timing. Some of you in this room are exceedingly good at roping God into your career choice. And you say, man, I am not going to be seduced by money, by the office, by the title. I am going to be, I'm going to be following Christ into my career. And that might mean a pay cut. That might mean something that makes no sense in the business world. 
That might make me a weirdo. Good. You're willing to follow. So live a normal everyday life. Here's step two. Step two is stumble. Okay? You don't have to work at that. Don't go out and try to do this. I'm not giving you license to sin. That's not what was said. But just go live a, a, a normal everyday life. Part two happens by itself, right? We spill the milk. We stub our toe. We stub other people's toe. We do the wrong thing. We go float around in a boat trying to fish all night. I mean, this is just what we do. This is part of it. So go live a normal everyday life. Stumble. And then here's the, here's the best part. When Jesus invites you to breakfast, Michael Phelps it, right? 100-yard dash. You, you get to Jesus as fast as possible. You, you just run to Him. We, we could do a whole sermon this morning on responses to those who are in sin. In other words, when you're caught in your sin, we can deny it. We can justify it. We can run from it. We can blame shift. I mean, we could go on and on about things we do. Instead of doing any of that. Instead of waiting for someone else to act. Man, be like Peter and just run and go have breakfast with Jesus. Restore your fellowship with Jesus. Do you start to see what a testimony this becomes? Do you start to see that we become trophies of God's grace? Do you start to see that people look at our lives and go, if God can use Chris Austin, there's got to be help for me. I mean, there just has to be. And, and I pick on Chris because I know he's nice to me. Um, I can put any one of our names in there. And we become trophies of God's grace. Where, where people look at our lives and go, that guy's nothing special. That family's nothing special, really. But man, every time that they, they get off track or blow it, they're just so humble about it. They just keep talking about this Jesus who, who cancels debt, who gets people out of real debt. Praise God for what Mark and Colleen Burge are, are a part of with God's help, by the way. That's, that's living radically different than your neighbors. To have no debt but a house, but a house payment. That's weird. Now, now to do that in response because you say, and I love Jesus so much, I, I want to just use everything for Him and be pliable and be able to be used in any which way. That becomes a living testimony. Another way to kind of put this, maybe in different words, is this. To open the book, to live by the book, and then to just be an open book. Once, once you open the book and start to live by the book, what, what starts to happen is God starts to transform your life. And He starts to reveal Himself to you in ways that you never thought possible. Wacky stuff goes on when you follow Jesus out of the church. I mean, really wacky stuff. Great stuff. Things you cannot explain. And most often, they show up in kind of tiny little ways that you don't even realize are such a huge miracle until you start sharing it with a brother or sister. And they just look at you and go, do you know how incredible this is? That is not you. The you I know responds this way every time. That's God at work in you. Or they remind you, don't you remember we prayed about this eight months ago? And you're like, that's right. This is God showing up answering prayer right now. Unbelievable. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 4.1. It's hard to see on your screen. I get that, but you can write it down. It says, therefore, since, we, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. And by the way, we do have this ministry. After next week, we're going to look at our play button. Worship, community, share. All that is is a broken out graphical way of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, teach them to obey all I've commanded you to do. That's the Great Commission. That's what this church is about. We're going to be, we're going to be teaching through that in the next several weeks after we wrap up John. That's, 
the ministry we have by God's mercy. Here's what he says. We do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what being an open book life is all about. Don't try to hide all your faults so you can just put this great portrayal of what perfect family and life you have. And then people will be wowed by your amazingly shimmery lifestyle and say, I've got to have that. All that does is a disservice to the kingdom of God. Because they find out, man, you're a regular Joe. Not, not only that, you hide a bunch of junk. You're actually worse off than me. I'm at least pretty blatant about my sin and my struggles. That does a disservice to God's name. Verse 7, same chapter, says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, as the band makes its way up, we're going to wrap up with one song and we're going to dismiss. But as the band makes its way up, I want you to listen at the end of Romans chapter 16. And a lot of places in Scripture talk about this. But I want you to listen to some personal remarks that Paul, the great Paul, is making about ordinary people. Little tiny graces that the Bible portrays as genuine, real spirituality. Jesus came and blew apart the flashy, the big, the external. And he preached a message of saying it's an internal thing. Listen to Phoebe. Phoebe was a servant of the church. Priscilla and Aquila, a church meets in their house. That's a testimony right there. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. My spell check had a hard time with that one. Listen to this. These are four women who worked hard. Four women who worked hard. Paul's wanting to call it out and say, these are tiny graces. These are ordinary people living the God life. Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. And all the time in between. Andronicus and Junius have been in prison with me. Don't just skip over these little personal comments at the end of a little letter that Paul's writing. Think about, these are real people. This is like Dave's voice is going to be on a podcast somewhere. But we need to hear about Clink, who's a living metaphor for what we're to be. An open book just sharing, here's some things. Uh, Mark and Colleen saying, look, it sounds a little disgusting now that I think about it, but here's how much debt we had accrued. And by God's grace, here's where we're at now. It's John Giordano who was here while I was asleep so that we could have lights and amplification going on right now. And these are just little God-following ways, God-honoring ways to enter into the story and be a fifth gospel, be a third testimony. God, we need your help this morning to get this. We don't want to get this intellectually. We don't want to get the cute little tie-ins. We want to live this. I pray that your word would be so ingrained in us, so inextricably a part of our lives, God, that it's not just a lamp unto our path, and a light for our feet, but it, 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 be, it becomes our feet. It becomes our path, and people can't even separate it anymore. Jesus, we invite you. We invite you by surrender, by choice, by running to you, by faith, to come and have your way with us. We freely confess that we, we really are nothing. 
And yet we hear your voice and you bid us, you beckon us to come. God, I pray for hardened hearts this morning. I pray for those whose voices aren't parched and whose eyes aren't tired of straining in their faith emergency. Would you replace their their belief system right now of how to handle this with your truth? Would you bring the light of the gospel into their lives? Give them a revelation of where to go from here, Lord. In their temptation, in their relationships, in their career, in how they handle their money and live their lives. We thank you, God, collectively as a people that you're so gracious and you meet our impatience with your incredible patience. Help us, teach us to abandon ourselves to that kind of a God. We love you. Amen.